0: Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML.
1: You've seen the signs everywhere. I mean, you don't have to look far at all now to see help wanted or we're hiring or apply within or any of those things. Uh, Everywhere seemingly is looking for people. Well, it wasn't all that long ago. This was certainly not the case. It used to be hard to get a job. Well, now I, I was reading somewhere that one of the hospitals in town is now looking for something like 250 registered nurses. Just one of the hospitals. It's amazing How many jobs are now out there and how difficult it seems to be to fill them? Why? What has changed so unbelievably rapidly in our world that this is now the case? Wayne Luchuk is a professor of labor studies at McMaster University. He joins us now. Professor, thank you for the time today.
2: Uh, My pleasure.
1: This this is something that, you know, I, I know that there are times when jobs are easier to find and jobs are harder to find. I can't remember in my lifetime, maybe it has, but I just wasn't paying attention. I can't remember a time in my lifetime, it seems to have happened so unbelievably rapidly in such a huge way that we've moved to everywhere is hiring now.
2: Um, Yeah, that's right. It's, It's quite a remarkable labor market compared to what we've seen for the last 20 or 30 years. So why? I mean, I know there's reasons and
1: people point to COVID and people point to an aging population and... I mean, I mean I, and I suppose those are probably all valid parts of it. But w- when you look at this, what's, what's the biggest driver that's leading to this?
2: Well, I mean, I think certainly these demographic factors are, are, are significant. You know, we are an aging population. But I think there's also something um, deeper going on in the economy. One, it, it's growing incredibly rapidly coming out of the pandemic. And so all of a sudden, a lot of employers are looking for a lot of employees uh, and and that's uh, I think uh, creating some bottlenecks here and there. I think we're also seeing you know a bit of a of a of a, a transition in where people are are working are willing to work. So it's not clear that everybody is short of jobs, but it's very clear that in the service sector, healthcare sector, where you know conditions have been pretty brutal for the last couple of years, uh, employers really are having uh, trouble finding workers. I think what we're also seeing is that uh, jobs that are predominantly face to face are becoming much more difficult to fill as people uh, you know, they get used to working from home and they see the advantages of that, but they're also looking at the disadvantages of face-to-face now that you have COVID and the extra risks you're, you're experiencing if you're going into some kind of a face-to-face job.
1: How much is it changing what a potential worker could demand? Because i got to believe that's part of it. If everyone's so desperate, I'm thinking that people are going to be able to ask for a lot more, whether it's wages or benefits or whatever else.
2: Yeah, you know, we're we're seeing this already. Perhaps you know, not as much as you'd as you'd like, but you know, given, I mean, keeping in mind that wages have been stagnant for decades, basically. So the you know the, the the worker in the middle of the income pile is making today about the same as they made 30 years ago. So, I mean, in that, in that context, you know, wages are starting to edge up. Uh, I mean, they're not keeping pace with inflation, but uh, what is keeping pace with inflation? But I think what we're also beginning to see is, is a shift sort of in the, in, the, in, the, in the power dynamics at the workplace. So we're, we're beginning to see workers joining unions who we just wouldn't even think of joining unions uh, five or ten years ago in some of the service sectors, in the Starbucks, and in these kinds of places. Um, and I think we're, we're, we're beginning to see where workers are saying, if you want me to come, I, I need some kind of a blended offer here that has some benefits, some wages, but also you know, maybe some options to work from home as well, because I'm just not willing to do the you know, 40, 35 or 40-hour hmm. week uh, in the office anymore, uh, given what I've, I, I, I'm seeing right now.
1: And you mentioned inflation. It's one of the the tricky parts about this, I would think. Uh, I'm not a, an econ- an economist, but it would seem to me that if we're worried about inflation, so we're going to demand more wages, more benefits, more things like that, then for companies to pay those, probably they're not just going to say, I don't want the profits. We're going to see prices go up, which then lead to other prices. It, like, does it not become a spiral that we even though people are being paid more, and that could be a good thing, but it makes it more expensive, does it not? I mean, we're, it's sort of a circle of inflation.
2: Sure, I mean, that, I mean that's absolutely a risk. I mean, there's, there's no doubt about that. But, you know, there, there are a number of ways that this can actually prove to be a real benefit for, for all of society. I, I think what we want to see is, you know, workers be uh, as productive as they can to work with the best tools, to have the best management systems, uh, to have, the, you know, the best environments at work, and i think if employers are going to be forced to to pay more one of the options is they they're going to have to do a better job than they have in the last little hmm. while i mean they you know they've kind of had it easy for the last 30 years i, I know a lot of employers are going to say where did you find this guy uh, but they've actually had it kind of easy given you know they could they could hire people part time they could hit, hire them at minimum wage not provide any benefits they didn't have to worry as as much as they should perhaps of how they're using those workers i think what we're now in an environment where employers are really going to have to up their game uh, otherwise we will just get this inflation uh, and and you know the employers that can solve this higher wage, higher productivity uh, trade-off are going to be the ones that are going to be successful going forward.
1: One of the other things that uh, I know has been highlighted through this is um, we've heard about, some people have called it the demographic bomb or the demographic time bomb that we're waiting for in this country. And I was reading something this week that says it's now arrived, that we have so many people who are at or approaching retirement age that we're seeing, maybe COVID was the thing that spurred a lot of them to move along, but tons of people who are saying, "Okay, I'm done now," and that has suddenly, in mass, opened up a whole bunch of jobs that were otherwise taken.
2: Yeah, I, you know, we're we're certainly seeing an uptick in in, in retirements. Uh, you know, there's no doubt about that. Uh, but you know, this is this is just part of uh, the reality of a, of an aging population. So the the cohorts that are in, they're in their twenties and their thirties are just smaller than the cohorts now that are in the mm-hmm. 50s and the 60s. And, you know, that, that can only have one outcome. Um, it, it's going to be uh, squeezing on the labor market unless we get, you know, people working uh, uh, later into their lives. And then that's, that is an option that some people are pursuing as well.
1: But we knew, point was, we knew this was coming down the road, but maybe COVID, once people, as you mentioned, got the sample of working from home or being at home, decided, you know what, I'm, I kind of like that. I'm 63, I'm 64, I'm 65, rather than sticking around, I think I am going to leave. We knew it was looming. We just didn't know it was going to happen this moment.
2: Well, you know, you know this, this has not snuck up on us. I mean, We've, we've been aware of the, of the demographic trends for a, a long time because uh, demographic trends are, are very slow to develop. So we've known about it. And you know we have um, you know tried to bring in more immigrants. we've We've plugged the hole for a while with temporary uh, uh, workers uh, temporary foreign workers. I think that is perhaps, uh, a strategy that we can now look back on and say, that wasn't so wise. Perhaps we should have offered some of these people citizenship, and now they'd be around here to fill some of these jobs. So I think you know we're going to see a very different kind of policies and labour markets going into the future, to, to, in recognition that there is this demographic shift going on.
1: Does this get resolved in any kind of quick fashion, or is what we're seeing right now going to take months or years to sort itself out?
2: Um no, i think we're we're at the, we're at the beginning of of a period of transition. I think you know we're we're really at at a, 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 an inflection point from, as I said, the last thirty years, which has been a, a period of uh, workers having trouble finding jobs, high unemployment, uh, the jobs they could find were insecure, precarious, low paid, without benefits. I think we're now moving to a society which is going to be more inclusive, hopefully that, you know, that people will have more security, will have better returns from their from their work, and hopefully be more productive, and that's to the benefit of everybody in Canada.
1: Wayne Luchuk, uh, professor at McMaster uh, in the School of Labor Studies. I very much appreciate the time today. Thank you for this.
2: You bet. Take care.
1: It's a really interesting topic. If you're looking for a job right now, if you've got some skills, especially in some of these areas that, uh that companies are looking to hire, oh boy uh, you, you, this might be these might be happy days for you uh, it, sure, it sure sounds like unlike a generation ago or not even that much where it was really hard to find work, boy um, you may be you may be in business here literally and figuratively You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML Tomorrow night, the Ticats Alumni Association is honoring not just Danny McManus who's getting his name up on the wall of honor which is long overdue but also the 1972 team the quarterback for that team is a guy that I think some of you may know his name maybe maybe you've heard of him once or twice before his name is Chuck Ealy joins us now Mr. Ealy how are you good Scott how are you I listen I am terrific although I'm you know the times that we've met and talked over the years I'm, I'm not able to process that you could be old enough to have played in a gray cup 50 years ago <laughs>
0: Well, you know, uh, ask my body that. <laughs> time goes, so it's all good. So time takes care of itself.
1: So does that? You know, those that is one of those moments. I would think playing at home, winning at home, that whole mm-hmm. thing is that something that remains really vivid for you. Can you go back into your mind's eye and picture that vividly, or is it a bit of a blur at this point?
0: Oh no, no, no! It's not a blur. I mean, that was uh, just one of those very unique things for me, and I, I'm sure with some other people, but. For for me to to be in that thing as a a, a freshman, this kind of idea of a professional player uh, to see that happen is is something you can never forget. And uh, you know there are times when things will come up. I'll remember plays. I'll see things that happen and during that game. And uh, uh, it's it, it's 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 a good feeling to to know that and understand what took place at that time. So it's something you can't forget.
1: Funny question, but when you do have those memories or you visualize something, do you see it from the perspective of a quarterback on the field or do you see it from the TV highlights that you've watched since then? What, what's the picture that's in your mind?
0: Well, The picture in my mind is, is like all the, all the games that you win and all the situations you have, it's the people that played in the game, the various plays that happened times that created the avenue for us to be successful at it. Uh, and so there, there are things that come on obviously on TV that pulls it up. But there's all things that you, you know, I, I remember, you know, things like on the sideline with Ian Sunter, we had gone as far as we could go. And I said, don't mess this up. You know, <laughs> I don't mean it that way. It wasn't that that harsh, but it was like, OK, it's, your, it's in your hands now. And so, uh, you know, those kind of things. And when he kicked it in, in understanding and feeling that we don't have to go any further than what we did.
1: Yeah. Ian Sunter and Scott Norwood got the same advice in two different championship games. One listened. Um, thank goodness Ian Sunter listened. Uh, you, you still live in this area. You still work and live in this area. Do, Do you get to keep up with the guys from that team much or as time passes, does that sort of become less common?
0: Well, just little things between the Argo alumni and the TICAD alumni events and some things like this, uh, you know, that may draw you into it, but, uh, uh, you know, that's just basically it. I mean, you leave it up to the younger people who are coming up the line and, and the things that have gone on. Uh, and, and you know, life changes in its different format for me over the years. So, you know, football in itself was a great period of time in my life, but it created some other things in period of my life that allowed me to, to move forward.
1: I mentioned at the top that this was the first time in the modern era of the CFL that a team had won a Grey Cup at home. Last year, as everyone knows, last year the Thai Cats had a chance to do that. It hasn't happened a whole lot even since then. I mean, a few times. But were you one of those guys who was cheering like crazy for the Thai Cats to replicate that? Or were you kind of quietly thinking, you know, it's kind of special that we hold that alone? Um, I kind of like that we're special that way. How, how did you look at last year's game? Well, actually, I didn't, I didn't
0: recognize what you said about the, the only team that's done that as far as a home team. And you know my my feelings about it. If it was more of a, you know, looking for the has to win, you know, in, in that particular circumstance, is not because of what happened with us that at
1: that, that time. I didn't even know that was a kind of a statistic that that came up. Well, I one of few. Yeah, not yeah, the one only three. one. Not the only yeah. one, but one of a few. There's not been many yeah. teams that have done it, so it's it is still pretty special to. And yeah. I mean, look, we all we watched the game last year. We saw what the crowd was like. You can even those who weren't there in 72 could probably have got a bit of a feeling last year, what it must've been like 50 years ago.
0: Right. Right. And uh, it, it was, it was really, very exciting. I think, you know, coming from the States and playing in the first year from college, you know, it was quite exciting to see the fans in Hamilton who were very much involved with their team. Very much. To, I, I wouldn't know that, you know, except for playing through the games as you started off the season. Uh, but as we went through the season and went through the playoffs and as we went through the bands and all the things, you could see the commitment of, of fans to a team that, uh, that was playing at that time.
1: I want to uh, switch tact just a little bit here, because you were a guy who, when you came up, um, one of the things about football players, everybody knew that you toughed it out. If you had a nick, yep. if you had a ding, you toughed it out. If you could get on the field, if you were not unconscious or you didn't have a broken leg, and sometimes even if you did have a mm-hmm. broken leg, you yep. went back on the field. You probably watched or saw the highlights the other week of Tua uh, from the Miami Dolphins. Tua T- Tavi- oh, I can't even say his name. Um yeah, Tua. But- Thank you. Just two of you. Thankfully is easy first name to say. Um, When you watch that now, as someone who lived and played in a different era, when you see Mm -hmm. that, does it bother you? Or do you say, you know, football has changed, but his attitude and the attitude of people who want to get him back on the field is what we just got used to.
0: I, 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 I didn't, I didn't understand that at all personally, because once he was down and I came in late and saw him playing in the second game and he said, what? I said, why is he even out there? I couldn't even I, I didn't even understand why he would even be playing the next game, and with less more than the six years. I mean six weeks uh, six days I' better get that right yeah, uh, yeah, six days before he he got back into to the game, and uh, that was much too fast based on the circumstance, at least what I knew. I'm not a doctor mm-hmm. or anything, and you know those type of things is you know got to be fixed because you're just you know brain injuries are just not that much as I know that easy to recover from in a short, short period of time.
1: Did you ever face something like that? Did you ever have a time in a game where you got knocked so silly that you really didn't even know where you were? No, no.
0: That that never, I never had that experience. And, uh, I, you know, I hear about some of our, you know, defensive guys over the years who had that happen and came off the field, but I didn't have any contact with that. Uh, nothing personal that ever happened to me like that.
1: No. And those guys, and I mean, even up until much more modern era people, I mean, we're, we're only talking recently that this has really changed. Has it changed right. enough, Chuck? Or is, the, or, is the, or is the makeup of a football player just so ingrained that you're going to have to pull them off the field? They're never going to take themselves off voluntarily.
0: No, no, I mean, I think most of them, you know, will think they're okay, but that's why you have trainers and doctors who see the medical attention to it. They should pull them off whether they think they can or not. But if when, you, when they go to the position where I think they sometimes put them back in, then that becomes, you know, the avenue, especially in the professional world, you know, the job that they have to do to win, to get what they need to get to another level. And that's why you've got to have people who are mature in the mindset mm. to ensure that those kids, young men or, and women in some sports, maybe to get them off the field and make sure they recover.
1: Just before we let you go, uh, your team is being honored, obviously the 72 team tomorrow, also Danny McManus. Uh, I know over the years you saw Danny play a lot. I can't imagine, I mean, the two of you have a lot in common. Uh, Both won great cups with the Ticats, both unbelievably great quarterbacks, Hall of Famers. I can't imagine that the two of you could be more different, though, in how you got to that success as far as the way you played the game. Like, you guys were the opposite as far as the way you delivered the ball and kept things alive and did what you did.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's the, that's the the beautiful thing about the CFL, especially, well, even more so now, even in the, the, the U.S. markets. Uh, I was more mobile, moving around, and, and Danny's and other people are more pocket-driven uh, avenue of what, what they do, and that's the beautiful thing about that, that different styles can create that, that um, level of expertise to accomplish what you're trying to accomplish and achieve. And so, congratulations to him and what he's done and how he's done it, and, uh, you know, and keep going with, with the ones that are coming in now and see how uh, they adjust to the CFL and, and playing the game.
1: It is uh, it is a great thing. It's going to be uh, tomorrow evening. its uh, they're, they're honoring both teams. Um, there are still, and I'll find the uh, thing in a moment here, uh, if people are interested in going, there are still some individual tickets available. You can see Chuck. You can see a bunch of his teammates are going to be there, a bunch of other Ticats from over the years. I've got the list in front of me, and i got to tell you, if you like the Ticats, uh, and you've loved them over the years, this is your opportunity to meet a ton of the biggest and best names that SEAM has ever put out. Uh, Chuck Ely, thank you so much for the time today. I really appreciate taking a few minutes. Okay, Scott, thank you very much. And hopefully, we'll see you tomorrow night. Absolutely. And if for those who are interested, um, there can be, let's see here, um, tickets at ticats.ca would be your way that you could potentially find out if there are tickets available for more tickets at TyCats.ca. I can't tell you exactly how much they cost, and I, uh, and I think that's the address, and if I got that wrong, I will get back to it in a minute, but um, yes, if you're interested in going and seeing these guys and being part of this celebration, they do it every year, this is, uh, it, it is a fun night, and it's, um, as I say, if you love the tie, because, oh, no, here we are, pardon me, let me give you a different email, if you're interested in going, HTCAA, Hamilton Tiger Cats Alumni Association, HTCAA at bell.net. That would be the email you would send it to if you're interested in going tomorrow. It's at Carmen's and um, you can find out the details then if you want to see Chuck and, and many of his teammates and other players over the years will be there. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Today is Canadian Beer Day. There is celebrations from coast to coast i suppose although probably for many people every day is canadian beer day so the celebrations are just you know it's wednesday <laughs> nonetheless that's what it is uh, ed is the proprietor or the co-proprietor or one of the proprietor however you want to say it of sean and ed brewing which you can find in dundas uh makers of many delicious beers uh, he joins us now Ed, how are you today great scott how are you I'm excellent. Thank you for doing this. Happy Canadian Beer Day. I don't know what a person who makes beer for a living does on National or on Canadian Beer Day, but I don't know if you do anything different.
3: Uh, maybe have an extra beer.
1: <laughs> oh, well, that seems yeah, like well, a I think you had reasonable it right. Answer. I think
3: for us beer drinkers, uh, every day is beer day.
1: Yeah. Although I will say this. It seems to me that in future, if they're going to have Canadian Beer Day, maybe a Friday or Saturday makes more sense than a Wednesday. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, and and I would generally pick a day when it's hot and in the summer. Although today was a beautiful day and people were out on the patio at the brewery. So
1: Yeah, it was. But a Wednesday in October, you're right. Doesn't seem like it's you know, maybe the best choice, but yeah, yeah. it's okay, as you say, whatever. Um look, it, it is this is this is an interesting time, I think, for um for beer makers for the beer industry. We know that there's you know, whiskey and that is very cool right now. It's a really cool thing to do that kind of thing, but I think craft beer is sort of in the same category that it's a it's a cool thing to be in that way more than just your run-of-the-mill big box stuff i mean craft beer really is having a moment isn't it Uh, i i really do believe that scott and i think one of the reasons why
3: is there's a you know we look at the shot brewing company and what we do there's a real shift to producing amazing tasting beers that are i'll say more like what most people drink which is the lagers right so you're seeing craft not just do the hoppy you know, different things like the stouts and the dark beers and the IPAs and things, but you're starting to see breweries like we do focusing on lagers, right? So you're thinking about crisp, refreshing beers that everybody, when they think of a beer, because I think for a long time, people thought of craft beer as the hoppy stuff, and I'll have one of those, and then I'll go back to my lager, Uh my mainstream lager. And I think that's one of the things that craft beer is doing well. They're making those lagers, but making them better.
1: Well, you just touched on something that look, I, I, I've been thinking this for a long time that a lot of people say they love all those interesting craft beers that are really hoppy and bitter and all the rest. But you're right. I, I sometimes think they say that because you're supposed to say that, but deep down they're like, Oh, please, someone just give me something that I really like here because I, I, you know, I know I'm supposed to say this to sound like I really know what I'm doing, but I don't love this as much
3: yeah I, I think the those types of beers are i think are the adventurous ones. I'll have one here, one there, but when you really think about what you want to have as a beer, you want to have a, you want to end the day and have or end your round of golf or whatever you're doing and have just a crisp, refreshing drinkable beer uh, that you can enjoy one or two of.
1: How did it get though to the point where so many people like you almost as i say and, and maybe you disagree with the with the premise but Where to sound like you're really serious about it, you have to talk about how you love this very specific, very bitter, very hoppy beer that everyone else goes, I'm not really sure. But to have have credibility somehow, we got to a point where you almost had to say you like those things.
3: Yeah, I think that's true of everything though, Scott. I see it in wine and I see it in other industries. True. It's, yeah, it's, yeah. it's, you know, the foodie people, you know, and in the food industry, oh, you got to have whatever the latest trend is. And when you think about it, it's like, you know, the latest trend for, you know, broccoli rab, it might not be the thing that everybody likes <laughs> when you know, all they want, all they want is a nice burger and French fries. Right. But you have to talk like, you know, it. so I don't think it's different than any other industry. I just think you know, people just need to get over the hump and then go back to the beer that they really want to drink.
1: It's a great example. So so as far as you're concerned, it would be okay for someone to come in and go, I don't like that stuff. At- call me a rube, but I'm, I am don't really like it. It's okay to say that.
3: Yeah, no, I think, I to me, what I encourage people to do is drink what you like. Life's too short to drink things that people tell you to drink or what you're supposed to drink. You know, if you don't like it, don't drink it and be honest with yourself. But, you know, we sometimes, I always say it's there's the difference between uh, drinking with your head, oh, I'm supposed to like this, versus actually drinking the beer down, getting it into your stomach, and go, oh my god, I really like that. And drinking with your heart. I always recommend the second way, not the first way.
1: There is whether it's for the, as you say, the hoppy stuff, or more for the loggers that you guys are certainly uh, standing out with. Um, it is there are microbreweries that are starting up or craft breweries, however you want to describe it, all over the country. It is not, I would think though, and it's not a cheap thing to get into, is it? Uh, No, it's
3: it's like anything, it's a different scale, right? So depending on how much, how big you want to be. So, you know, you can get in, uh, I'll call it a micro brewery that's more a on-site pub where you make the beer for on-site. That's one scale. Then there is, you know, every varying scale going upwards. And it also depends on how much you want to invest in quality, like anything. You can cut corners and save some money to get in, but it changes your impact on quality. And I think, you know, what we've done for those that have been down to the, the brewery in Dundas, you can, we're very transparent. You've been there. You've seen all the tanks. We show you way, where you make the beer. We've got a lab on site we do all these we've got the best equipment in the world we know all these things from a quality perspective so there's a whole bunch of factors go into what the cost of getting into it Um, but at the end of the day also if you just like beer you can also start and do home brews right so there's nothing wrong with that either
1: well, okay, the homebrew thing, let me just say for the record, and again, you can agree or disagree, every homebrew is loved by the homebrewer, and then when they foist it on someone else, you're like, oh, that's great, and when they don't look, they pour it down the sink, because no- nobody likes anyone else's homebrew, do they? Uh, I'm not going to say they don't, but I'm going to say it's really <laughs> hard to make beer, and if you
3: don't have the right equipment and the right technology and the right people in place, uh, it's really hard to make a great-tasting beer.
1: So going back then to the point when you're talking about it, about getting all the equipment and stuff like you, you'd better have some real belief that people are going to like what you're doing if you're going to try and get into this business, because it's not going to be cheap if it's a giant failure.
3: Yeah. uh, Yes. I think, uh, we all have, uh, um, I think we're like farmers. We always believe it's going to be a successful harvest, right? Uh, And if you're not positive and don't believe in yourself and and the things that you're going to do, um, I don't think we'd be doing it. That's for sure.
1: Did you – weird question. I never thought of this before. Did you have – flavors? Did you have recipes before you started or did you build the stuff and then say, we're going to find the stuff that works? Where do you start this process? Great question. I think we didn't have the recipes, um, but what we did
3: have very clear belief and direction that we gave our brewmaster, who's absolutely brilliant, Rob Creighton, was we knew what style of beer we loved and we wanted to make the, the beer that we were passionate about. So we don't do sours at the Chardonnay Brewing Company. It's not because there are not some great sours and not that there's some great breweries doing sours. We just don't aren't passionate. We don't necessarily like them. And we focus in on the things we have passion for rather than to try and chase the latest fad or the latest flavor. We wanted to do lagers because we love – drink. Sean and I love drinking lagers.
1: How often though are you working on new things? Because I would think to stay relevant, you've got your base things. Every brewery has their base things that, that that work, but you've also got to find things that stand out. You had Weir beer this summer with Mike Weir, but I mean, are, is it constantly trying to find new things that you can bring onto the market?
3: I, I think on a on site perspective, we love experimentation. We love giving uh, different taste experiences to our customers when we when they visit us. But really, our core beers, you mentioned uh, Weir Beer, uh, our partnership with Mike Weir, doing a craft ultra lager, low-cal, low-carb, low-alcohol beer. That's right in our style. It's what we do. We do it really well. We've got an amazing partnership with Mike. He's an amazing um, individual, and we share the exact same value. So d- doing our Weir Beer project with Mike has been great, but it's still in line with what, you know, Sean and I are passionate about and the types of beers that we want to create.
1: There seems to be one other thing besides whether your beer is great or not, and I'm not, your beer is, is very good. I'm not suggesting otherwise, but if I was starting a brewery, it seems that the first thing I would try and come up with is a can that's eye-catching and a name that may be rem- memorable because that, for so many people, that seems to be the thing. If you're walking through the beer store and you see a can that catches your eye, I'll buy it even if I don't know what's in it.
3: Yep. And I think that's very true. I think that's been a big part of craft's success. Um, there's everything from the wild and wacky and the cool, funky names to the simple and classic looking designs and everything in between. And I think what's, what, what makes that very attractive to people is craft has that diversity. And I think, you know, as we celebrate Canadian Beer Day, it's also about celebrating the diversity that exists in, in, in craft beer there's a lot of breweries here in hamilton they all do amazing things they just do different things than the sean ned brewing company and we should be celebrating that
1: we always we often hear people say well the thing i like about craft beer is the ingredients higher quality ingredients do you do you believe that people really can tell the difference if, if you were to put a blind taste test in front of them of a craft beer and a we'll call it a big box beer do you think most people would really be able to say which one is which
3: I'm going to say probably not, but I think what consumers want to know is even if they can't taste the difference, and I, I, some can, some can't, some may, some may not, it's not necessarily about tasting the difference. It's, you remember, it's, you're putting something into your body, right? And you want to put only the best things into your body if you can, right? And I think that's the way I think people look at it. They sit there and say, Well, craft beer, only four ingredients, all malt, malt water, hops, yeast, that's it. Where the the big boys use chemicals, adjuncts, corn syrup, all these other things to produce their beer. Now, they do it very consistently, um, but I think consumers want to know that what they're putting, what they're drinking is of better quality, and maybe or maybe not, they can tell
1: the difference. And even if they can't, I think it's been shown that people, if they believe that it's better, they are willing to pay more for it. They're, they're willing to pay a premium if they buy that concept. Absolutely. Yes. Which is, you know, again, which is, I guess, great for the craft for the smaller places because you've got to make your money somehow. So if you can, if people will believe that you're giving them a good product, they're willing to fork out for it. That's good.
3: Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. And, 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 you know, just for your listeners, you know, the, the reality in, in the, the beverage alcohol, whether it's beer, wine, spirits, You either sell a whole bunch and make a little bit out of every bottle, or when you're a smaller guy, you sell less, but you need to make more out of out of that each individual bottle. And so that's sort of the reality of pricing, and that's why you see craft beer may be slightly more expensive than the big mainstream beers, because they're selling millions of cases, and you're selling, obviously, a a small fraction of that.
1: Uh, just before we let you go, cause I know you've got a, a thing to get to here, but yeah. before you got into the beer business, something had to inspire you that you wanted to do it. And, and generally you're probably not going to advertise for another brewery, but was there a beer that you drank that you said, yeah, we got to do something like this. We got to, or I like this so much. I want to build something. What was the beer that sort of made you say, I want to get into this business?
3: So great question. And, uh, you know, it it was at the time when one of the very first, if not the first craft brewers was just starting up. So it was late 1980s. Sean and I uh, were in university with late 80s, early 90s in university. And it was still a craft beer and it was Upper Canada Lager. And that was probably when Sean and I started moving away. You know, I think I think my beer in university was probably Molson Export. And we were starting to go, wait wait a minute, there's got to be something else here. And Upper Canada was down just off the QEW in Toronto, was the craft brewer independent. And it was that Upper Canada logger that sort of flipped us to understanding that there's premium quality products out there. And that eventually someday down the road, we'd want to be able to do something like that.
1: Every, everyone in our generation, it was either Molson Export or OV. <laughs> <laughs> exactly <laughs> that, that is ed from sean and ed brewing here on canadian beer day uh, i know you got to run really appreciate you taking a few minutes today thanks for this awesome thanks scott we'll talk to you again yeah it's uh if you've not been down there uh even if you look here's the amazing thing and i'm not being paid by them i don't believe they advertise on the station i don't know so i'm getting nothing for this um even if you don't like beer Sean and Ed is a cool place to drop in on. There, they got good food, and it's, a, it's just the, the place to go and look. It is if you're down in Dundas on Hat Street, go take a look. The Scott Radley Show weekday evenings from six to eight on nine hundred CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode and also be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.